This morning I'm reading from 1 Samuel chapter 17. This may be a very familiar passage to you because it tells the story of David versus Goliath. And it's, a, it's a, actually a very long story. I'm going to take just the first portion of it to consider Goliath's challenge and David's response to that. Listen as I read God's word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Sukkoth, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Sukkah and Azekah in Aphes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood up on, one, on, a, on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. And a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistines drew near, and the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand. And see how, how, how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. 
And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked to them, talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who comes up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. And David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. The people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab's oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep of the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Pause the story there to take up the rest and the weeks to come. So David versus Goliath. It is a very familiar story, isn't it? So familiar that even the broader world has come to know this story. And in the minds of many, it's come to represent the little guy against the big bad giant, the shepherd boy against the giant. That's uh, what most people think of David versus Goliath. And that's all well and good if this were just a moral story, but this is more than just a moralistic tale. The account of David and Goliath records much more than that. It stands in the midst of the history of redemption, and as such, it tells the tale of that ongoing battle that happens between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that is told at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And its ultimate fulfillment is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to redeem us, to do battle against sin and Satan and death itself, and to free us from those things. I want you to hear this account of David and Goliath with that history in mind. And I want you to see not only David and Goliath from these theological terms, but I want you to come to understand your life from these theological terms because this is a matter of trust in the living God that is placed before you. The trials of this life will no doubt test your faith. 
They will reveal in whom you trust. The question that this passage presses upon us is, do you trust the living God or not? We're going to begin with a giant, Goliath of Gath, and find that he challenges the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, not just the children of Israel. The chapter begins by telling what's, what's happening here. It sets the stage. The Philistines had once more gathered their army and invaded Israel. The battle lines had been drawn up in a place where there's a valley, a valley of Elah. It seems like the sides of that valley were very steep. It went down to, down to a riverbed. This is good military ground. The armies are on these sides, and it's, it's hard to cross a river and then fight uphill. And so here they are camped against each other. Now, the last time they had invaded, the Philistines had a different tactic. They, they came, they occupied, and they raided all over the countryside. And God had used Jonathan to turn back that invasion and to push back the Philistines. But this time, the Philistines come with a new tactic and, in a sense, with a new weapon. They have a giant. And... I use that word because that is a word the Bible uses to describe men of great height. Storybooks will describe giants and give pictures of them that are, are, are mythical in nature, taller than buildings and things like this. The height of, of Goliath in, in our terms is greater than, uh, than anything that we have ever heard, nine foot six. Nine foot six. It doesn't call him a giant in this passage, but it is he is descendant from a race that are called giants in other portions of the Bible. And this text takes great pains to describe this soldier. It describes him uh, almost anticipating that, uh, that people would shake their heads at it to say, well, how could that ever be? And it's not my intention to go into a long defense of whether or not there could be somebody who stood nine feet six tall uh, up, to, up to our ceiling. Uh, the only thing I'll say is that Guinness Book of World Record records a man in the 1940s who stood eight foot 11. So he'd be brushing up against nine foot. So a uh, I'm going to leave aside any other defense and say it's, uh, it's very possible. Uh, and the Bible speaks of this as, as history, and I accept that. But listen to the depth in which they describe Goliath and his armament and his, uh, and his profession. That's the first thing it says. is It says that Goliath was a champion. And by the way, this is a very interesting word. It's a, it literally means a man between two. Uh, we, might, we might say, now there's a man among men, right? That's the way we would say it. That's a, that's a man. Everybody else is boys. The effect of it, though, is also to say that this is not just someone who is huge, but this is a trained soldier. It suggests that he was a specialist in combat. 
and particularly in this tactic of single combat. For Samuel goes on then to give careful detail about his armor. And just listen to this. On his head, there, his head was covered with a helmet of bronze. And his upper body down to even his upper legs, there was uh, a coat of mail that weighed 126 pounds. That may be, if you put all of the Curry children together, they wouldn't weigh as much as the armor of Goliath. His legs, uh, his lower legs were covered with, with metal as well, and if that wasn't enough, they had a man that went in front of him who held a shield so that he could use his, his hands to fight. And by way of weapons, he had a javelin on his back, he had a spear of bronze that was huge and heavy. The length of it was uh, compared to a weaver's beam. It's, we don't understand that very well today, but it would be a large implement that weavers would use, very long and heavy. And the head of that was made of iron, 15 pounds sharpened to a deadly point. We find later that he also had a huge sword. This was... This is a one-man killing machine. He's like a tank. All this during a period of warfare when there really wasn't very much armor. The king and, and high-ranking officials may have some armor, and the king and his son had a sword, and Goliath is armored from head to toe in metal and armed to the teeth. I called him a tank. The effect of it is, is, is like a, in World War II, a German Tiger tank rolling onto the field of battle. It would strike fear and awe into those who were facing it, such that they thought that there was no way they could ever defeat it. The Philistines sent this champion out every day to issue a challenge. And as the battle lines are drawn up across the valley, it describes the Israelites going out, even shouting the, the battle cry. And I like to imagine the very first day that they do that, as they are assembled there, they come out, and they are all enthused for the battle that's against them. And from the ranks of the Philistines comes this killing machine, this giant to stand against them and to issue a challenge. And we'll find that their hearts melt and they run away. And this happens for 40 days. As I said, imagine that happening day after day and the the fear and desolation of that challenge coming against them so that by, by day 25 or 30, as they come out and they shout the battle cry, instead of, yeah, let's go, let's, let's, uh, let's fight the Philistines. By this time, it's like, yeah, okay, let's go, let's go. This is the day. Okay, okay, let's go. And now listen to the challenge. 
because I want you to feel the weight not only of what the Philistines were sending against Israel, but to feel the weight of the words of the challenge that the giant Goliath issues against them. Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Goliath came out and issues this challenge to single combat, man to man, winner take all. If Goliath won, Israel would become slaves. If the servants of Saul, if, a, if the soldier of Saul won, then, then, then the Philistines would become slaves. And again, I want you to feel the weight of that challenge and the weight of the fear of the soldiers looking at the challenge that they faced and thinking, how in the world can anybody defeat him? But I also want you to feel the weight of these words because it is more than just a, a fight to the death, which is bad enough. This is more than just a battle of national supremacy, which is also bad enough. Goliath lays down a challenge that is a challenge against Israel's God. And this has come up before. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, what did they do with it? Well, they towed it off to the temple of their god, Dagon. And they set it at the feet of Dagon to say, we beat Israel's God. Our God is greater than Israel's God. We are greater than Israel's God. And so when Goliath comes and issues his challenge, his challenge is, is also about the gods of these two people, these two nations, and which God is going to triumph. I like the way that, uh, that one commentator paraphrased this challenge. It's as if, Goliath said, am I not a pagan, a worshiper of Dagon, a God-hating Philistine? Then why won't any of you men of your living God come and fight me? Just who do you think is stronger? Huh? Just who do you think is stronger? Your God or mine? Your God or me? That's the challenge that Goliath laid down day after day after day for 40 days, morning and evening. And you can just feel it sucking the courage and the life out of Israel's soldiers. 
Now, before you dismiss this challenge between these two nations and between these two gods is just something that is Old Testament. I want you to recognize here the, the, the spiritual and theological nature of the confrontation that's going on. That Goliath's challenge is a, a physical challenge. But there is also a theological challenge that is being laid at Israel's feet. Who do you trust? In whom do you place your hope and your sense of protection and power? Do you really trust in the God of the Bible and the God of Israel? The problem was that Israel didn't trust God. They ran away in fear. They did that day after day. They were betraying where their trust was. Or maybe more appropriately, they were betraying where their trust wasn't in this case. At the end of the day, they couldn't produce a champion to stand against Goliath. The logical choice would have been Saul. He's the king. He was raised up to lead Israel in and out of battle. That's part of what a king does. And he was tall, right? <laughs> they chose him because he was tall. Saul was dismayed, it says. It may be that he was there at the head of the army as they, as they came out every morning, and, and, and maybe he was the one who was whipping them up in that battle cry, and yet as Goliath came, his knees would go weak, and he and the soldiers would turn and run away. He was terrified, and the fear of the king seems to seep down into the souls of the rest of the army because no one else would fight. Saul even put up a reward for someone who would would take up this challenge, a reward, a, a very rich reward. Money, my daughter, and being tax-free for you and your father's household for the rest of your lives. That's a pretty good offer. But no one came to fight against Goliath. And into this scene, David enters. David the shepherd. We have Goliath, the giant, and now we have David, the shepherd. Saul had called David to serve him. And we looked at that last week. He played the harp when Saul was distressed. He became Saul's armor bearer, but uh, he wasn't there all of the time. He would sometimes go back home to take care of his father's sheep and when he did, he would bring supplies back for his brothers who were there and for the commanders of the army. And that's where, where David enters this scene. He has been at home taking care of, of the sheep. It appears that he has not seen Goliath yet. And so he comes, and he is there giving food to his families, and he's there right at the right time to hear Goliath issue his challenge. And from David's words, David apparently understands 
this conflict from its theological perspective, that this was a conflict not just between two men but a, or two nations, but a conflict between the Philistines' God and the God of the Bible. And that comes out in his words. And I said, I wanted you to feel the weight of Goliath's words and the challenge that was issued. Now I want you to hear David's words and feel the weight of them as well and how they reflect his understanding of the, the living God that he serves, the God of Israel, and how that informs him in this conflict. David spoke, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And this is not David's doing some trash talking here. It's not bravado on his part. David's brother Eliab took them that way and he rebukes David. Uh, you, should, you should go home and take care of the sheep. What are you, what are you doing here? I, I know your pride, the insolence of your heart, for you have come down here to see the battle. Now, it may be that Eliab is speaking out of jealousy because he wasn't chosen to be anointed king. It's, perhaps it's reflecting that fear and shame that had come over the whole army and that he couldn't stand to have this rebuke coming from his little brother. But David was serious. David wasn't like a, like a little boy here saying, let me at him, let me at him, I'll tear him to pieces. And the words that he used weren't just words of insult. They carry theological meaning. He speaks of Goliath as a reproach and as uncircumcised. And he doesn't use that as an insult, but as a point of covenant theology. Goliath was outside the covenant. He was an idol worshiper. He was an enemy of the living God. And his actions were not just against Israel and its soldiers, but his challenge and his actions were against the living God of Israel. And David understands that. And his words reveal where his trust is. I like the way that the commentator Phillips summarizes this. He says, as David understood things, not only did the army of Israel have no need to cower before a God-denying pagan warrior, but as the people of the living God, they had no right to flee in terror before Goliath. Rather, they should have claimed the promise of the presence and power of the Lord and taken the field in holy boldness and dependence upon the Lord. And this is where that issue of trust is revealed, is it not? And I'd like to, uh, to pause as I did in the reading of this. I'll pause here to make several applications. 
related this in the context of, of the, the large overarching story of the history of redemption. And, uh, and you need to hear that so as to be able to understand the issues that are at stake here with David and Goliath. Because it is not a moralistic tale told to inspire you to face giants. This isn't a history lesson about Old Testament Israel and, and, and Philistia. The issue is and, and, and always has been a theological issue. Do you trust God? Do you trust the living God of, uh, of the Bible? And I'll apply that by asking two questions by application. What trials do you face that tend to undo your faith? As Goliath challenged and blasphemed God, we face very similar, uh, similar challenges today. And the challenge is about trust. When you stop and think about it, it's amazing the, the, the condition of the world that we live in and the situations that we go through each and every day that reveal where your trust is. Some of the things we face today are, are really big societal issues. If you're like me, my head is spinning to see the cultural revolution that is happening. We're rushing headlong into things that were unthinkable just 10 years ago, just five years ago. All the while, our culture shakes their fist at God, right? There's defiance against the God of the Bible that's taking place today. And the enemy seems invincible. And how will we stand against such an enemy? The details of how to stand are ones that we work out day by day. But the question lying at the heart of it is, in whom do you place your trust? as you face decisions that are on that watershed of cultural divide, it's tempting to just go with the flow so as to not raise any suspicion or concern. Well, who do you think is stronger? Who do you think wins in the end? Is your answer to fight back with a bigger giant? or elect a stronger president, or to run and hide from it all? Those are some answers you could take, but they're also showing where your trust is. Trust can be about matters of life and death. Like when you face illness or cancer, and the temptation is to think that God has forgotten you, that God is not with you, that God doesn't care. Or the matter may be more practical. You're longing for relationships. You're longing for marriage, for family. For, and your longing for love convinces you that, uh, that you can't wait. And so you take shortcuts to find an answer to that problem. Or you may think that that besetting sin that you fight 
against day after day is more powerful than God. And so you throw in the towel as if you can't go to Christ himself who has been tempted like you, who gives help to all who come to him and who has himself put to death the power and the penalty of sin for us. And I could go on over and over again to speak of vocation and priorities and politics, decisions that are part of everyday life. What I urge you to do, I can't give answer to every single item here. What I urge you to do is to pay attention to the spiritual nature of these conflicts, to pay attention to the spiritual nature of these decisions. Your response to them can't help but reveal where your trust is, who you think is greater, who you trust. The last question I'll ask, the last application to ask is, what remedies do you learn from David? You see, David inspires us to uh, not just to expect great victories against the Goliaths that you face if you would just believe. Uh, and that phrase is, I hope, is probably as, as well known as the story of David and Goliath. If you just believe, you can accomplish great things. You can defeat the Goliaths. And the question is, well, so what belief are you talking about? In the context of today, usually that's, well, if you would just believe in yourself, right? If you would just have confidence in yourself. And here's where, where, where the, the real story of David and Goliath just kind of wipes that away because David stood there and answered the challenge of Goliath, and, and it's going to go on to fight, and we'll come to that. But he answered that question not because he believed in himself, but because he believed in God. Because he had been equipped, and more on this next week, not with the armor of Saul or with the weapons of this world, but he was equipped with the Holy Spirit and David is a, a type of Christ, it is a, a marker of, of the Redeemer to come in this way. Because Jesus rises up, kind of like David, from an unknown family, from an origin that is, is lowly, and he comes to fight against Satan. As fearful as Goliath was, the power and ferocity of Satan is that much greater. And Jesus was equipped by the Holy Spirit himself to fight and to win against Satan. In whom do you place your trust?
Through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For I delight in these things, says the Lord. The thrust of this portion of the message of David and Goliath is to understand and to think about the decisions and conflicts from a spiritual perspective. To understand that you are a child of God. That you are united to Christ that you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and that you may stand against the wiles of the devil. And you may stand against the principalities and the princes of evil in this present age that we do battle against. Not because you are strong, not because you are great, not because you are cunning or have the better weapons, but because you are in Christ. So I urge you to understand the spiritual nature of those decisions and conflicts. And to ask the question in this situation, in whom do I trust? And like David, may you trust in the living God and in the victory of Jesus Christ for you. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, there are many things that make us afraid that undo our faith such that we run away in fear. Father, I pray that you would help us to see our union with Christ, to see uh, the nature of our decisions as, as relating to who you are and because of that, who we are in the world. And Father, as we have opportunity to stand for Christ, give us boldness to do that or that that be in times of severe trial, of sickness, of facing death itself, of cultural change, of moral pressure, of fighting against temptation. Lord, these are all things that are difficult for us. But, oh God, I pray that we would see that we belong to the living God. And so may we stand in this present day. May we stand in Christ for it's he that is our champion. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen to these words from the psalm that we'll sing in closing, Psalm 18G. Blessed be my rock, the Lord who lives, the living God, he is our rock. He is our fortress, our tower, our safety. Let's sing these words expressing our faith and asking God to equip us to serve him. So I'm 18G. Please stand to sing.